Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning. Good morning. I'm Carmen LaBerge. If you're joining us uh, on Mornings with Carmen for the very first time, we seek to bring the mind of Christ to bear on the headline news of the day. And so let me just go ahead and tell you, we um, have Peter Kapsner on once a week. He is a professor at the University of Northwestern St. Paul. He's the former host of this show. um, And I save up the weirdest headlines all week and some sports headlines, too. Um, for Peter, because we have a great time discussing them. So earlier, when we talked about pets and people prioritizing their pets over their over having children or over their children or instead of children, um, one of you texted in, holy cow, exclamation point. And I texted back. That's actually the subject of the conversation that we're going to have with Dr. Peter Kapsner this morning. There are people who consider the cow holy. And there's a headline out of India that you are not going to want to miss. So as the lead into that, when Peter popped into the studio just a few minutes ago, um, I asked him, where in the word are you today? And he answered um, from first or second Samuel chapter 30. Uh, I'm going to let him answer. Can you bring him on early, Paul? I, I am here and listening hey. in rapt attention as I do, Carmen. Yeah, it was for, it was first Samuel hey. 30. First Samuel 30, Michael Nick was your conversation partner. The last time that he was here with us, we talked about the 50 most important Bible questions. He's a Moody professor, and um, and he has a radio show, and people ask him questions all the time, and so they are in a book. Um, and so it, he's a Jewish studies professor. It's um, curious to me, right? He got to pick one passage of Scripture to talk with um, talk about with you guys, and he picked that one. Why did he pick that passage? What's he, in there? Yeah, he did. Well, he, uh, Bill Arnold and I, the afternoon show host, uh, we're, he, we're doing a series weekly on Old Testament characters, and so Michael picked out actually some events from the life of young, young David, and and so one of the passages he took us in was first um, Samuel 30, which it was a passage that was pretty unfamiliar to me. I knew some of the story, but he was making the point that right after David had this triumphant success with the Goliath story, and and the nation is praising him. Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his tens of thousands. Well, immediately David goes into exile. And as part of the exile, he's having to learn to follow the voice of God independent of whether or not anybody is going to follow him. And 1 Samuel 30 is is an event in his life in which most of the men following David are, are... grumbling and complaining and they don't want to have anything to do with it. But David was finding strength in the Lord in these really sort of quiet spaces and down times. And, and what Michael was pointing out yesterday was that this is how we get shaped for leadership in the kingdom is it's almost never by the, the metrics that we tend to think we're going to get shaped for leadership. God, if we're going to be effective in his kingdom, we almost always have to go into these wilderness experiences where we learn to find strength and solace in God alone and not from the applause of the people. So it was really a pretty power. He was great. I'm glad you've had him on the show here this morning, too, because I'm, I'm looking at his book here in studio. I, I was thumbing through that Bible questions book, too. There's so many questions I wanted to ask him. He does a great job of the book. <laughs> 
Right. Yeah. Well, and also, I, you know, you know me. I just wanted to point out again that you're playing catch up. I, yeah, <laughs> I, always coming. I am. I think I, I walk in the studio and I think I'm three steps ahead of you and Perot in here, and I, and it's revealed quite quickly. I'm like a mile and a half behind. I can't even see your coat. We love you. I can't even you. see him. We love you. We're bringing right, you we, along, aren't we? Yeah, you are. We are. We're bringing you along. Hey, um, we want to talk about. Uh, comparative religions. And the way we want to talk about that is with the subject of those who believe in incarnation or the enfleshment of God, the taking on of flesh. We as Christians think about that in relationship to Christmas. God becomes man, God with us. The person is Jesus Christ. Others think about it in different ways. So we're going to talk about a headline out of India, literally people worshiping a cow who they regard as the incarnation of God. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Peter Kapsner is in the house. We like to talk with Peter about some of the strangest headlines from around the country and around the world. And so today we are going to talk about a Jersey cow um, born uh, with three eyes and four nostril holes in a village in Chatagra Rajnagada, Raganan, on. Mm-hmm. Um, word spread and people were queuing up at the farmer's house to worship the calf, calling it an incarnation of God. Mm. What's going on here, Peter? Yeah, that was an interesting story. And you brought up the phrase before we stepped away for a second there of comparative religions or looking at a different religion and trying to understand it on its own terms. And and that is not easy to do because you you have to... S- practice this idea of becoming an insider, at least vicariously, or, you know, we're all outsiders, at least you you and I are outsiders to the Hindu faith. And so we have to try to crawl into the mind of the person who might be practicing the Hindu faith to understand why they would be coming in droves to to see this cow. And that's not easy to do because uh, people in, in India uh, are not trying to interpret the world through some Americanized lens. They're not thinking, gosh, I see it through an Americanized lens, but I'm going to do it anyway. They, they see through an entire Entirely different kind of lens, and when it comes to the the sacredness of the cow, uh, the the religion that pervades most of India is Hinduism, as you said, and reincarnation is one of the key principles of Hinduism. And just a, a quick refresher on reincarnation: that the goal of that is that you increasingly move up these ranks from maybe sort of single-cell organisms, because when you die, you come back as some sort of living organism. And if you can come back uh, as the cow, that oftentimes this this is seen as maybe one step away or possibly even being part of the expression of the divine life, because the cow in Hinduism was seen as a symbol uh, of unconditional love for the people because of the fertility that it offered. A, a milking cow in particular has the highest... Uh, form of, of sacred life for the Hindu people. And so 
they they see this as an incredible gift um, in this reincarnation cycle as you're sort of moving up in the, in the universe of the gods that the cow expresses what this universe of gods is in terms of its gift to humankind. And, and so it's interesting about that, um, Carmen, is that the cow also show is, is considered pretty sacred in the Muslim faith. There is... There are quite a few rules and restrictions for what you're going to do and have to do if you're going to slaughter a cow. And then you look back, and this is where I think we can find um, some understanding on this, is you look back at that they they worship the golden calf or the cow when Moses was getting the covenant Mm. of the Ten Commandments up on Mount Sinai. And then we think, what were they doing? Why did Aaron and the people make this golden calf? And, And part of this is because with this symbol of gift and fertility, if we think about it in this way, um, the ancient people looked towards the fertility of the land and the fertility of the animals and the fertility of their families as that which was the blessed life and ensured their future. So in the unknown future that we all live, you and I and Paul Pro and everybody that's part of the Faith Radio family, we have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow at the end of the day or next week or the week after. And and for them, the fertility of the animals and the land and, and their families was how they were able to see themselves as blessed because they felt like their future was then secured by these things. And the cow is really part of this sacred future, this divine future in the Hebrew, uh, in the Hindu faith. And it all sounds weird to us, but if you came into studio, Car- uh, Carmen, and you had a briefcase full of money. Let's say you had, I don't know, a thousand hundred dollar bills. I'm not even sure how much that would be. A hundred thousand dollars, I guess. And, and Paul and I looked at you and said, here's the deal. We're going to just rip these up right in front of your face. We would all be horrified because we look to money to secure our future now. Well, to kill a cow in the Hindu faith is the equivalent of that. If we can kind of crawl into their mind, you are basically diminishing the, the future gift that, that the gods are providing. And so it was really an interesting story. Which, you know, I think that when we talk about the cultural sensitivity here and winning a witness, um, like that immediately makes me consider, all right, Christians in India cannot Mm. eat beef. There's just no way. Right. Um, Because if they have any hope of reaching anyone for Jesus, right, they can't be putting that kind of stumbling block in front of um, a potential convert. It may also result in Right. You not only being arrested, but um, but imprisoned, I think forever. Like yeah. it's a capital yeah. offense to kill a cow. Yeah. Since the second century or something. Correct. Yep. Yeah. So um, I think that when we talk about comparative religions, this is a good opportunity for us to talk about why we believe in incarnation, what we believe about the incarnation of Jesus, how we would answer a person um, who would say it's just as irrational for you to believe that Yahweh God of the Israelites inhabited a human body in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, as it is for people in India to believe that Shiva has inhabited the cow body of this Jersey cow. I know we have to take a break, but that's my question. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. Let me pose that as a question. Let me pose it as a question. Peter, is it not just as irrational to imagine that the God of the Hebrews revealed in the Old Testament as Yahweh took on human flesh to dwell among us um, in the person of Jesus. Is that incarnational <laughs> claim not just as unreasonable as we find this claim that Shiva of the Hindus would have returned in physical fleshly form? That question up next. This is a new day. Every day. 
We're talking with Dr. Peter Kapsner, and we're talking about, um, well, I'll just describe it this way, Comparative Religions 101. Peter, why is my claim that the God of the universe, Yahweh, um, took on human flesh in the person of Jesus, incarnate among us, um, Emmanuel, God with us, fully God and fully man, um, how is that different than the claim of those who are worshiping this three-eyed, four-nostrilled Jersey calf in India, claiming that it is uh, the in- incarnation of a god, female god named Shiva. Mm. Yeah, that is a surprisingly complicated question, isn't it? At the end of the day, like, if we just step back and allow ourselves to enter into that question, you said it uh, before the break as well, that if you just if you step outside our own faith what we believe that this inexhaustible god of the universe that brought all things into being and and who has no beginning and has no end decided to take on the form of human flesh and dwell among us and and then go into the waters of death and come out the other side as uh, in, in the resurrection life i mean the this is all common stuff to you and to me and, and the lives in which we live. But uh, I said at the outset of this that, that the, the practice of comparative religion requires that you step outside of your assumptions for half a second and view it through a different kind of lens. And if I was somebody who was in Bangalore, India right now and, ste- and, and thought, gosh, what do Carmen and Kapsner believe? It, that sounds utterly absurd to them, and, and it does. And so it invites us to become the kind of people that when you're doing the show that you, you do each morning that is intended to equip people with the mind of Christ in the world or as people are reading the scriptures or studying about our faith or growing in our faith, the reason why we do those things is because um, we are bearing witness to this absolutely absurd claim that there was this God that came and took on human form and and resurrected and came out the other side. Now, how do you prove that that's true? How do you say that that is the story versus all the other stories that are going on in this world? That's where it gets a little bit more complicated. We would need several class periods of sort of an apologetics or a defense of the faith faith course. But one thing that we can say is you, you tend to judge things by their fruit. And so you, all of us believe some kind of bigger story that's going on in this world. For many of us, the bigger story is maybe our own personal story, and we are the story. That, that's a really common understanding within American culture is that I'm at the center of the story. But when you see the fruit of putting yourself at the center of life's story, you end up in conflict with other people. You end up feeling isolated and confused and depressed and in turmoil and all of that. When you When you say that the story is that um, we are subject to some sort of disfiguring power that's going on in our lives and it's causing us to disrupt one another, to harm one another, to, to wreck this world, to wreck relationships, to be in pain, to exploit one another. The headlines you have to deal with morning in and morning out that we wake up to, they're, they're filled so often with, with just objective horror when you hear about mm-hmm. people being killed in Los Angeles or in yeah. New York City or all of these these places. So if you look at that, you have to have an explanation for why that's going on. And the best explanation across the different comparative religions really is, is that there is this power at work that is anti-God. 
that mm-hmm. is anti all things that are good. And then the question becomes from there. So what was God interested in doing something about that? And once you lay the foundation that the world is, is pretty broken, then you can start mining out, oh, this does begin to make sense that maybe the only claim uh, that we can really live by is that one came and conquered it all. And there can be a people who live by a different power. And you and I could go on and on from there. But that's how you begin to evaluate these things is how what is the fruit of these claims um, as they play out over time? All right, so here is my sitting over coffee this afternoon, although I won't be doing that because I'm still, you know, sicky. (laughs) But maybe over a a Zoom call with a friend, um, here would be some of the things I would bring into the conversation. Jesus fulfills the prophecies of the Old Testament. He does. Um, God the Father affirmed that Jesus is his son, and I would turn to the baptism narratives. Um, Jesus's glory was revealed to at least Peter, James, and John on the Mountain of Transfiguration, and he stood there with two recognizable figures from the Old Testament, um, which is not only miraculous, but the fact that they saw the glory of Christ still astounds me. Jesus demonstrated his authority over everything from fish to waves to demons to death um, over the course of his life. Um, I would turn to every single miracle he performed, um, and I would, you know, and he rose from the dead, mm. and he ascended into heaven, and he offers us the grace of God um, now and forevermore. Like I, I would point to all of that and say, this calf can do, can make none of those claims and do none of those things. That's exactly right. This calf, by the way, this calf, by the way, uh, cannot on its own suckle the teat of its own mother because its tongue is too long. Something that's not um, covered in most of the articles uh, about the, the genetic defects of this calf is that it, is, it, it also has an extraordinarily long tongue, and it cannot, therefore, um, feed itself. And so I feel like the, the, the incarnation of a god would at least be able to suckle the teat <laughs> and be able to sustain itself. It would not require outside assistance in being, um, you know, in preserving its life. So I just think that there are opportunities for us as thinking people to engage in these conversations. We know more than we know. Um, I think we're tempted to um, jest and make fun. And in that, I think we lose the, um, we lose the opportunity to have the comparative religion conversation with somebody who really is interested in knowing. Yes. I mean, I'm not I'm not saying that that we can't sort of be guffawed at this. I am saying that if someone asks us an honest question, you know, why, you know, why do you believe that God the God you believe in took on human flesh and yet you resist believing that these people have a God who has now taken on bovine flesh. Mm-hmm. Like, you ought to be able as a Christian to answer that question. Well, so. and, yeah, and Carmen, I, I, what you've just described is, is one of the key conversations of the day, is this idea of religious pluralism. When the, when the world got more interconnected through mobility and technology, it also crashed together so many of these different cultures that otherwise were maybe the study of books that you would do in passing for a couple of weeks in high school somewhere, but now we're actually living 
across culturally, globally, and, and there's a clash of religions and ideas going on. And, and I appreciate what you bring up because uh, the idea to just jest or blow off or guffaw at or something like that, um, these are image-bearing men and women of the king. We all are that, and, and all of us are confused. There isn't anybody that has the, the, um, the fullness of what God's kingdom is all about. And yet there are much clearer lenses with which to view God. And of course, the lens to which uh, to view God is the word becoming flesh. It is Jesus. If you've seen him, you've seen the Father. And we need to be able to make the case both that that's true, but we also need to be able to treat other people um, in an understandable way and say, hey, look, if I had grown up in that culture, I would likely be viewing things in the same way. And totally, so, 100%. So how do we do that? Exactly. Yeah. Yep. 100%. All right. Um, sadly, we do not have time to hear your um, hot take on Ben Roethlisberger. We'll save it. Um, retiring from the NFL, saying goodbye to the NFL, and saying hello to advancing God's kingdom. It's a great I, story. I kind of, I know, it's a great story. Yep. All right, Peter Kapsner, we got to leave it right there. We love you, man. Yeah, Off love to you class. Too. Talk to you soon. Okay. I read an article a couple of weeks ago in the San Francisco San Francisco Chronicle about a woman named Jessica and her mother and the attempts of her mother to rescue Jessica from the streets of San Francisco where she is living as a fentanyl addict. Um, she is supporting herself through theft. Um, and we're going to talk with John Ashman from the CityGate Network about the drivers of the drug use and homelessness crisis today, what's happening across the country, the relationship of all of this, maybe to mental health, what's going on with the person on the corner who you see from time to time, um, and how we might as Christians change the reality in our nation today. Drug use and the homeless crisis, up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is Max Locato. Abused and rejected by his brothers, Joseph, the son of Jacob, suffered servitude and in prison. Why did God allow Joseph's suffering? Why does God permit challenges to come our way? Wouldn't an almighty God prevent them? Not if they serve his higher purpose. When Pharaoh was troubled by his dreams, the butler mentioned Joseph to Pharaoh. And as fast as you can say providence, Joseph went from prison to palace to prime minister. He saved not just the Egyptians, but also the family of Jacob. Years later, Joseph would tell his brothers, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish the saving of many lives. What was intended as harm became good. Why? Because Joseph viewed the sufferings of his life through the lens of divine providence. Can I urge you to do the same? I met John Ashman a number of years ago um, at a um, meeting of evangelical leaders, and I read his book, Invisible Neighbors, and I have learned a lot from him over the years. His invitation to um, a city mission in Washington, D.C. changed my perspective on many, many things. And he's here today uh, heading up an organization called the CityGate Network. You can find it at citygatenetwork.org. John, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks. Good morning, Carmen. 
Good morning. So assume that um, we've all seen homeless people and um, also assume we our hearts are moved and then explain to us why we are failing so desperately on this front as a country. Well, there are many reasons, but policy these days, uh, particularly in many urban cities, are taking us the wrong direction. Uh, there is uh, statements out there and policy to go to w- with it that says homelessness is primarily caused by lack of affordable housing. And uh, we understand that lack of affordable housing is a contributing factor to homelessness. But so is family dysfunction, and lack of education, and uh, young people aging out of the foster care system, and opioid use, and uh, mental illness, LGBTQ kids running away from home or being forced away from home, uh, PTSD, uh, the list goes on, human trafficking, and just on and on. Homelessness is a multifaceted problem that needs a multifaceted solution, not a one-size-fits-all solution called housing first. Put people in a house and everything is cured. Uh, we keep talking about that as if it was a, a new idea, and you'll see documentaries on it like why didn't we think of this sooner but if you really dig deep and listen to some of the people who are practitioners on the street working with people who are homeless you can see that it has many problems and it just doesn't doesn't work out so i remember you helping me really see um a person who is living on the street differently talk to us about kind of the average person out there. I mean, the numbers related to women on the street, particularly younger women, was really astounding to me. Um, Moms on the street with their kids. Can you talk with us a little bit about the numbers? Well, at CityGate Network, uh, which represents about 300 organizations uh, from coast to coast, uh, and let me just say, in most U.S. cities, one of our member organizations is the largest homeless services provider. And in some cities, it's the only so homeless services provider. In, in our organizations, if you could kind of uh, picture a pie chart and, uh, and you take a look at that, two-thirds of the pie chart are individuals looking for assistance coming into a mission. The other third is uh, families. Of that group of families... Uh, 51% are women with children. And so that's the, the, the part that really crushes you when you walk into a mission and you see a mom with kids in tow who have no idea where they are, but they look around trying to see other kids or trying to put their eyes on toys or whatever might draw their attention to where they are. Mom, meanwhile, goes through the check-in process and trying to uh, understand what may be coming next. And it's just, it's the, it's that sadness in their eyes, realizing this is where they've ended up. We're talking with John Ashman, uh, the website you're going to want to visit for resources and to connect with the ministry in your community that is connected to the CityGate Network is citygatenetwork.org. If people are listening right now, John, and they're saying to themselves, I don't understand how people get to this point. They're, they're saying to themselves right now, I would never be homeless. That, that's what people are saying. I would never be homeless. I would always have someone to turn to. Talk with us about family dysfunction, abuse, domestic violence, mental illness, um, drug addiction, 
uh, the, the constellation of things that are happening in an individual's life that leads to this point? Well, you've brought me to an intersection where there are numerous roads here and, and saying, go, go down one of them. Uh, there are many roads to go down. You, you talked about uh, family dysfunction. Just look at the divorce rate. And, uh, and you, you can't help but understand that the people on the street have a lot to do with that. It could be husbands, uh, ex-husbands who are out there. It could be ex-wives. It could be people who are living in a car. And uh, it just isn't uh, tenable any longer with temperatures like uh, we're finding today in a lot of places, particularly where you are. And, uh, and so that, that ends up bringing people in, into missions and struggling. You mentioned drug addiction and mental illness. Um, those numbers are all over the place, and people really don't know what the truth is out there. It used to be that 25% of the people who were on the street are uh, are, are addicted to something. Um, mental illness was about a 30, 33%, so I think a quarter uh, mental illness, a quarter addiction, a, th- a third mental illness. But those numbers change and have changed because of the pandemic. You know, you have a lot of people who used to take a break at the water cooler and talk to staff, but Working from home, it, just, it worked out that they ended up uh, going to the refrigerator and having a wine cooler instead. And so we've got people coming into our missions looking for addiction assistance, driving up to the door in um, in, in a Lexus and, and, and dressed in their finery saying, I'm functioning, but I'm addicted. I need help. And so those are the people who ultimately that road takes a bend and they end up somewhere they never thought they'd be. Those statistics that I gave, you know, a quarter or a third, um, they're, they're go all the way up to, I think, a California policy lab came up with something in California. 75% of the people who are on the streets in poverty right now are addicted and 78% have mental illness. So, uh, you, you know, just turn the channel and you'll see different addictions. Uh, I mean, different uh, numbers, but addiction and mental illness are huge out there. So, John, you've given us um, percentages. Um, People are asking right now a percentage of what? Two thirds of how many individuals? Uh, One third of how many uh, people? So talk with us about the raw numbers. Well, it depends on what agency in the federal government you want to believe. Um, you know, the Department of Housing and Urban Development has been the go-to for tracking numbers, and they always used to have uh, numbers in the uh, 600,000 range, 600, I think it was high as 680,000 at one time over the last decade. They dropped those numbers down uh, to almost 530,000 in 2019, I believe it was. Uh, those numbers have come back up again uh, at their own admittance. They uh, certainly wanted to see those numbers go down, but that, that's just the Department of Housing and Urban Development, and so many of these departments have different definitions. We've been pushing for a standard definition in Washington to declare what homelessness is. It used to be if you didn't have your own place, you were homeless, but if you're living on someone's couch, uh, you're not homeless anymore, or if you spent a few nights in a motel, uh, you're no longer homeless. And so I, I've used this illustration. You have people who are uh, in this homeless community and they run into somebody who says, hey, I was down at the post office. I think you have a check down there. I did. And they went down and found out that they've got some government money. And so they look at the, this this amount and go, thank God, hot water and clean sheets. And they check into a, a, a sleazy motel for a few nights until the money runs out. Then they're back on the street. But according to the government, they're no longer homeless. 
that they came out with numbers uh, some years back and said, uh, look, we only have 550,000 uh, homeless and the uh, Department of Education says, that's interesting. Tell us why we have 2.1 million homeless children in our school mm. system. So you, you just you look at these numbers and it's uh, it, it, it's all over the place. All you have to do, though, is walk outside in most cities and you see the problem face to face. 2.1 million homeless children enrolled in public schools across America. I want you to just think for a moment, how did they access education during remote learning? John Ashman and I are going to continue our conversation in just a moment. You can find resources on this topic at citygatenetwork.org. We'll be right back. Welcome to the First Church of Mercy, where the doors of love swing open wide. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done. We have talked from time to time about all kinds of creative solutions across the country being implemented by individuals and churches and in communities related to um, people with whom we have relationships who are at risk of being homeless or currently living on the streets. I want to remind you of the fishes and loaves conversation we had out of Texas. I want to remind you of the conversation that we had, or at least I reflected on the story um, off of the East Coast where uh, the guy bought a building, and this is in Philadelphia. It's now like the best pizza in town. He only hires those formerly incarcerated. Um, They live in community with one another and they have uh, a trade. They get a job. They learn to cook um, and it provides a way for them to enter into life following incarceration in a way that keeps them off, um, off the streets. We're talking with John Ashman about the CityGate Network and efforts across the country related to people who are living outside of homes. And so, John, are we talking about the people living in a tent community in front of my Walmart, behind my Kroger? Are we talking about the woman who I see every single day um, standing in the median with a sign at the double turn lane onto the interstate? Certainly. Those are Americans uh, these days who have lost direction for one reason or another. Uh, many of them, you know, people think they, they're homeless because they've, they've lost money. Um, and we tell people when you run out of money, it, it really contributes and you're going to be, you need to find help. But when you run out of community, that's even worse because you have no one to support you. So they end up either by themselves out there or forming their own communities of people in similar situations, which is what has caused uh, all of us in our cities to, to run into to, to groups of people in areas where there, we may have seen one or two in the past. Uh, the biggest problem we're facing, Carmen, is that we have so many communities with lax laws. And, and that's uh, one of the things that I would put right up at the top of, of being an exacerbator to all the, all the issues that we've got with homelessness. Um, you know, there's that article that has, was out uh, talking about that lady, Laurie Steves, who went to mm-hmm. find her Jessica uh, in San Francisco. And the quote that um, that Jessica says when her mother is trying to uh, say, will you leave? Will you come home with me? Uh, that's the neon light in this article, if anybody reads it. Her quote is, this city is way too easy for people with nothing to get by. That's why I'm still here nine years later. 
when you can do drugs and suffer no consequences, why would I leave? I love it here. And yes, there are a lot of people with mental illness that needs to be treated. There are a lot of people with addictions that needs to be treated. But we also have to uh, look at all those folks who are in and out of addiction and in their moments of sobriety can make a decision that changes where they want to go. But there's no incentive to do that. You've got a lot of major cities who have gotten rid of all their quality of life loss, they call them. I don't know if that's a great title, but petty theft is no longer prosecuted in cities like San Francisco. And and solicitation for sex, uh, no longer prosecuted. Public urination, public defecation, drug use, all of those things. And if you uh, read what the, the organization called California Peace Coalition puts out, they say many addicts require the threat of jail or other forms of coercion to stop breaking laws. Uh, but it's not there anymore because we have what I call misplaced compassion. We mm. think horrible. We can't let these people suffer. And, and, uh, and homelessness is not a crime. And, and so all of the laws are, are written to help people uh, uh, who are homeless have it easier on the streets. We, we love the idea of not prosecuting people who are homeless, but there are prosecutable laws being broken by these people that, that we need to put a, put a line in the sand and say, enough's enough with this. Uh, this idea of, of um, I can be out here wherever I want and, and do whatever I want, that uh, girl Jessica, you know, again, says in, in, in this whole piece that she's doing that... Um, what I want to what I want to, to do is be out here because this is a vortex. It sucks me in, and I can be where I want to be without any any concern. So you have people walking around Carmen who say, "Well, I could get my meal for breakfast over here, and I know I got lunch over there, and uh, dinner is easy because this church group comes and feeds me in the park, and shoes are available here." And and at some point, there has to be a little bit of uncomfortability, a little bit of pain, and that may take uh, take listeners and push in the wrong direction when I say that, but there has to be a little bit of pain with uh, associated with the idea of being on the street and, and having an I don't care attitude. Jessica, for those of you listening right now, um, her story appears in the San Francisco Chronicle. It's uh, sfchronicle.com, but it's behind a paywall. And so I recognize that. Here's one thing you need to know about her. She has been uh, she has overdosed on fentanyl more than 50 times and um, by her own account. And so not only is she um, using the resources that the city of San Francisco is making available, she publicly admits um, that she walks into Target and takes what she wants and then sells it on the streets to support her habit. And she knows she won't be prosecuted for doing so. Um, she also knows that when she overdoses, she's going to be in an area where um, uh, an official from the city of San Francisco is going to show up with Narcan and she's going to be brought back to life. Um, but it is not a life that we would recognize as um, as blessed or good. And so there's a deep confusion taking place on the streets today in cities across the country. I'm inviting you um, to engage in a positive way in your own community. CityGateNetwork.org doesn't just have resources right there. They will help connect you with what's going on in your own community, in your own city. They've got all kinds of events um, that you could uh, participate in. 
and John Ashman is uh, is available. The book, Invisible Neighbors, is great for getting the conversation going at your church. Um, John, I, we don't have much time left, but I'm wondering if there's one thing you want to encourage people with as you walk off today. Well, if you go to our website, you go to the address city8network.org, one of the carousel pages that will come back around uh, talks about a hidden trace retreat. If you click the word watch on that page, you can see a video that we did recently with our friend Amy Grant at her farm in Tennessee, bringing people who were formerly on the street, most of them uh, addicted to something, and, and hear their stories about what happened once they got into a mission and, and how their life has changed. We brought in musicians to this and song, songwriters, Amy and Cindy Morgan and Mo Pitney and people like that, who worked with them for a few days, listened to their story, and then we did a concert in Amy's barn and played the songs about these people. Uh, it's, mm. it's just, it rip you. You need to watch that video uh, called Hidden Trace Retreat. All right. It's all at citygatenetwork.org. John, as always, thank you so much. Hank's going to be with you. You too. We'll be right back. Thank you so much for including me in your day. Be blessed today. Be blessed to be a blessing today. You have blessed me with our time together. Allow God to bless you. Allow him to bless others through you. I mean, just recognize that right now, God has his eye on you with great affection. He's extending his arms in your direction. He loves you. He conceived of you before the foundations of the earth. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. His grace is available. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.